So uh, for for all vis uh, visitors or people who be listening to this video, watching this video, I want to say welcome. Uh, my name is DeWitt Scott. I am an administrator at Moraine Valley Community College, working in the Student Success Center and the Student Development. And I personally am a book lover, uh, a, a deep reader, and a fan of a lot of uh, inter intellectual attributes, intellectual pursuits. And as part of my role as administrator, I am working with Moraine Valley Community College's library on, on the One Book, One College program, uh, where each semester one book is chosen to uh, be spoken about periodically throughout the semester and to be revisited for a lot of different reasons. And today, as part of a larger part of the program, not necessarily one book for this here, but a larger part of the program is we like to bring authors, we like to bring uh, writers to, to campus or into conversation and talk about their latest books, their ideas, their lives, their careers, and what they see moving forward. And today uh, we have a very special guest joined by a man I know as Baba, uh, <laughs> whose name is uh, Dr. Hakeem Adabudi. And just a, a brief intro for those uh, who may be unfamiliar. Uh, Dr. Madabudi is a poet, writer, publisher, educator, and activist. He is one of the creators and founders of the Black Arts Movement, an African-American-led cultural arts movement active in the 1960s and 70s. He has published over 30 books, including 14 books of poetry, in a career that has spanned over 50 years. He is the founder of Third World Press, the longest running black owned publishing company in America. He is also the founder of the Institute of Positive Education and co-founder of Betty Shabazz International Charter School and Barbara Sizemore Academy, all three of which are schools located on the south side of Chicago. Dr. Matabudi's impressive teaching career includes faculty positions at Columbia College, Cornell University, UIC, Howard, Morgan State, University of Iowa, Chicago State, and DePaul. He is someone I personally consider a mentor, a role model, and a cultural father. So we can welcome Dr. Hakeem Matabudi. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. And uh, I know where Marine Valley is. Uh, I've passed it many times in terms of my travels throughout Illinois. <clears throat> and they are fortunate to have a man like you. And I do not know the makeup <clears throat> the student makeup in terms of uh, ethnicity or race, but I know that it's a, a college trying to do serious work. Well, absolutely. Um, and, and we thank you for joining us. And, you know, so much to talk about that I want to jump right into it. Sure. Uh, as I said in the intro, you've written over 30 books in your career. Uh, so I was pleased to find your latest book. I have it here uh, called Taught by Women. Uh, mm, poems yes. as resistance and as resistance language, new and selected. Uh, and you know, I have plenty of your your works of poetry that I've read in the past, and I was instantly captivated by the title and the the dedication for the book. Uh, you, know, you said you dedicated the book to uh, all of the women who saved your life. Right. Uh, so I, I wanted to begin by asking you. Uh, why Talk By Women? Why this book and why right now? Well, for me, it's a culmination of a, of a lifetime of struggle, work, professional development, education. 
teaching. And all throughout my young tenure on this earth, and I'm 78, I say knocking the hell out of 79, <laughs> um, uh, women have been in my life. And most certainly, you can start with my mother, who only lived to be 34 years old. But most certainly, my, my uh, cultural mother, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, to whom I, I was involved with in terms of family over 33 years. Uh, uh, Barbara Ann Sizemore, Dr. Barbara Ann Sizemore. And of course, Gwendolyn Brooks was the first Black to win the Pulitzer Prize, as well as uh, the last um, holder of the uh, which became the poor laureate of the United States. She was the uh, last person to hold the title before it became poor laureate. Um, Barbara Sizemore, obviously one of the premier educators out of our culture. And while I was teaching at Howard University between 1970 and 78, she became the superintendent of schools, of the DC school system. Mm. Okay, so even though while she was here, I had very important interaction with her and we eventually published her book. But also um, while she was a superintendent, we were able to interview her for uh, our magazine that time, Black Books Bulletin. And then of course, Margaret Burroughs. Uh, Dr. Burroughs and I met back in 1962. I was in the military then. I, sp I served three years in the United States Army and um, I was stationed at Fort Sheridan, Illinois. And reading literature that was not recommended by anybody, because I found it on my own for the most part, reading, you know, Garvey, reading W.B. Du Bois, reading Carter G. Woodson, reading Margaret, Bur uh, Margaret Walker, Alexander Fineport, reading Gwendolyn Brooks, reading Richard Wright, and others, but there was no one I could talk to. Mm. So I saw this ad in the Chicago Defender, which was published daily at that time, uh, looking for volunteers for the Ebony Museum of Negro History, 3806 South Michigan Avenue. So I found my way into the museum one Saturday morning, knocked on the door <laughs> and the white man answered. I said, well, I'm in the wrong place now. <laughs> <laughs> but the white man was, was a Jewish white man by the name of Eugene Feldman, who had been run out of the South as a result of his advocating on the behalf of black people. And so he found himself at the museum and he became one of the founders of the museum, which eventually became the DuSable Museum of African-American Literature. Mm -hmm. But it first started in the home of Margaret and Charlie Burroughs, the first floor, the basement and so forth. And so he took me to the kitchen where Margaret Burroughs was working on a linoleum cut. She's a world-class, she, she was a world-class visual artist. And I stood in front of her staring at her. She looked up and basically said, you know, what do you want, boy? You know, I'm, I'm still, I guess, maybe 20, I think. I'm maybe 19 and 20. And she's the first Black woman I ever saw with a natural. This is 1962. She had a natural hairdo. And I, I explained to her, I said, ma'am, there's no one I can talk to. I, I'm in the military. I'm reading all this literature. And there's not one person on base that I can talk to. And they, they moved me from a missile site in Arlington Heights, Illinois to Fort Sheridan because I was fighting all the time. I'm fighting all the time because I'm being insulted by these Neanderthals, right? Hmm. He said, go upstairs and uh, talk to my husband. I went upstairs and it's a world-class library and this black man sitting at the table writing and looked like he had a, a glass of water by him and he had books over there and 
I walked in. He said, oh, how you doing, young man? What can I do for you? He said, your wife told me to come up here and talk to you. Oh, fine. Sit down. Uh, you want something to drink? I said, yes, sir, I'll take some water. He said, no, this is vodka. I said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, I lost my mother to drugs and to sex trade and all that. So I never drank, never smoked, never been high, even three years in the military. And um, I said, I'll take some water. And so we began to talk. And he was the first black man, black intellectual, to introduce me to uh, Russian literature. Mm. This is a, He had been reared partially in the USSR. Mm. He spoke Russian fluently. And so he began to introduce me to Dostoevsky. The Tolstoy, he began to introduce me to the 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 the, the uh, Russian uh, Afro-Russian poet of the poet of Russia, uh, Alexander Pushkin, okay, mm. and others, and so that started a long relationship, and I became a volunteer. So all of it started there, and then those three women, Margaret Burroughs, Barbara Ann Sizemore, and Gwendolyn Brooks, became a fixture in my life, okay, starting my early life. Now, the interesting thing about that is that Margaret Burroughs, who was the first one, was involved in building independent black institutions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when our when our uh, uh, hero, uh, Malcolm X, was assassinated uh, in 65, uh, a man by the name of Dudley Randall, who was a poet, as well as the founder of the major, first major independent black publishing company, Broadside Press. And I'm not talking about Johnson Publishing Company. And interesting enough, when I went to the museum, the museum's name was the Ebony Museum of Negro History. John H. Johnson had Ebony Museum, I mean, Ebony uh, uh, Magazine, and was the founder of Johnson Publishing Company, sued Ebony Museum, so they changed their name to the DuSable Museum. Mm -hmm. That's what happened there. And so I'm witnessing this museum being built in the home of Margaret Burroughs and Charlie Burroughs. After Malcolm, Malcolm X was assassinated, Dudley Randall came from Detroit to uh, Chicago to elicit the support of Margaret Burroughs in the, uh, editing a volume dedicated to the legacy and history and heritage of Malcolm X. That's when I met him. And I applied one of my poems for the book, which he accepted. But also by that time, I had published my first book, Think Black. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I sent him my second book, and he eventually published it and wrote the introduction for it. My point is that these, when I went to Detroit to so, so sign a contract for my second book, Dudley Randall's Broadside Press was in this home. Okay. okay, so I basically said, I got this. <laughs> so they, they built both of their institutions in the homes, in their homes. And so I lived at that time on the south side of Chicago in, in Inglewood, 6220 South Inglewood, hmm. and a basement apartment, you know, about the size of a conference table that I share with unwanted animals. And okay. uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that's where I found the Third World Press with $400 in a mimeograph machine. Um, and then I invited, um, you know, Carolyn Rogers and Jerry Minnie to join me <clears throat> to build it. And, you know, Carolyn stayed for about maybe six weeks. Jahari stayed a lot longer. But the point is, is that that's where we started until we bought, you know, we, we moved to several different places, but we ended up where we are now, where we bought that 
kind of half a block. It was a Catholic parish. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are located now and where our schools as well as the publishing company is located. But women have played an important part, a crucial, crucial part in terms of my development. And one of the major women, other than those three mentioned, is really my wife, Dr. Carol D. Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Carol D. Lee, uh, my wife, they call her Mama Sophia. She um, is a world-class educator, like uh, Barbara Sizemore. And she is essentially one of the major educators in the world. Her book is being used around the world, especially in, the, in China. Mm. In fact, they brought her to China to talk about her work in various universities in China. But my wife uh, is a former uh, president of uh, AERA, American Education Research Association. Yeah. My wife was inducted as an American Academy of Arts and Sciences. My wife was inducted into the uh, uh, National uh, Academy of Education. Uh, I, can, I can go on and on. She retired from Northwestern University and the, 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 the president and, and faculty at Northwestern University School of Education basically had a Dr. Carol D. Lee Day, all right, where they brought scholars from around the world to comment on her work. And then, of course, had a dinner in the evening. But what was just as important as that in terms of these scholars paying homage to my wife was that um, the president of the of the university uh, gave my wife, well, one, she was uh, uh, made emeritus, okay, uh, of the school. And that's two, that's not easy, no. And, and two, she... Um, received from the university a year's sabbatical. Mm. So she was retired, okay? <laughs> but the president said, we're gonna give you another year and you just do your work, okay? Mm. You can't ask for more than that. And so she has basically, she's been a, been a, and of course she's, you know, co-founder of our schools as well as Institute of Positive Education and um, has been very, very helpful in my building Third World Press into a, world-class uh, publishing company <clears throat> and so you go through the book and and most certainly if you look at the the, the top of the book i got Willina brooks margaret burroughs barbara sizemore carol d lee shirley graham du bois du bois was my hero mm-hmm. wb du bois okay and he and i we were born on the same day okay a, a couple of weeks from now uh shirley graham du bois who married du bois but shirley graham was a shero in her own right, in terms of writing young adult biographies, okay? Mm-hmm. Just look her up, Shirley Graham Du Bois. Ida B. Wells, I was the last Ida B. Wells Barnett University professor at DePaul University. Mm-hmm. When I left Chicago State, I went to DePaul University. Merrick McLaughlin Bethune, one of the really key educators in our community in terms of building one of the first black colleges, uh, historical black colleges. Rosa Park, we know her story. But very people remember Catherine Dunham, one of the key dancers, choreographers, uh, uh, anthropologists uh, in, 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 the, in our culture. Angela Y. Davis, we know her. Winnie Medella, we know her. Uh, Harry Tubman, we know her. Ho- hopefully, uh, they'll get the $20 bill name, named after this during uh, Biden's administration. Mm-hmm. Very few people know Margaret Walker Alexander. Well, Margaret Walker was basically one of the major poets to come out of the 40s and 50s and so forth. In fact, she was, a one that, she was the first Black Yale younger poet Okay, mm-hmm. to be named, and Yale published her book. Grace Lee Boggs, who's an Asian, married to a brother who essentially was involved in struggle, especially in terms of labor struggle up in Detroit. Geneva Smitherman, who is still alive <clears throat> and still with us. Geneva Smitherman was a linguist. 
she's a, she's a major black linguist on the faculty. She may be retired now at, at Michigan State University in Lansing. Shirley mm -hmm. Chisholm, we know her, Mari Evans, one of the major poets that come out of the black arts movement. And on down, so each, each of these women on the cover, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who essentially I did not know, but I know her work. Mm -hmm. I read her, you know, I, I, I read her uh, positions on, especially on, on, on laws and, 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 and activities toward uh, helping uh, women as well as men too. And so all these women, and as you know, it's, it's not only in the front cover, but also inside uh, front cover and also mm -hmm. <laughs> back cover and inside back cover. So I have been influenced all my life by these very powerful women and very strategic women. And as we now move into 21, it's very clear that uh, hashtag me too, yeah. okay? My sister Burke, and she's on the cover too, that their work is central. We would not have won Georgia mm -hmm. without Stacey Abrams, without the other sisters that worked with her in other organizations to bring those two senators out of Georgia. So that, that's, that's partially it. And of course, <clears throat> on the cover, I have many poets and writers, you know, Sonia Sanchez and, 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 and others that have essentially influenced my life a great deal. Yeah, I, and the, the cover uh, automatically stood out to me. My wife fell in love with the cover when she seen it mm -hmm. uh, because she had never seen uh, a manuscript or work like that that was dedicated to, I mean, it was filled from, from side to side, inside and out with these names of women written by men. Mm -hmm. So she she absolutely loved that part of it. Um, it's, and it really excited her. And, you know, as, as I look at, or as I got into the book and I read it, and I read much of your poetry for, for, most, for most of my adult life. Uh, so I've, I've consistent with the love for Gwen Gwendolyn Brooks um, and I could definitely um, uh, see the consistency in your, your mother. You talk about your mother a lot. Uh, right. matter, matter of fact, and I want to make sure I do this while we're on camera. I, I turn back and forth to pull books off the shelf. As right. we, uh, so, of course, this is yellow black. Right. Right. This is the first 21 years autobiography of, of your life. And it's a right. picture of your mother. Right. On, on, the, on the front. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, all of your poetry, much of your writing, you write about your mother's struggles. And I wanted to ask what about your mother's, your time with your mother that sort of molded you to be the man that you have become mm. today? I only spent, my mother was only alive in my life for about 15 years. Uh, as you can see, she was a very beautiful woman, most certainly in the, um, European tradition, but she was a black woman. And because of her beauty, uh, uh, she was taken advantage of a great deal. She did not go finish, high, finish grade school, I think the ninth grade at the most. And we ended up in Detroit, my father left. And so it was just my mother and I and, and my sister. I was a year and a half younger than I. <clears throat> so my mother <clears throat> ended up uh, uh, with jobs and bars and taverns. And, and, and the major tavern or the bar in Detroit at that time was Sunny Wilson's and where she was uh, a barmaid and really became uh, Miss Sunny Wilson, 1948, something like that. Mm -hmm. 
anyway, um, <clears throat> to make a long story short, she was a reader and I had just turned 14. I was 13, just going on 14. And she had asked me to go to the Detroit Public Library to check out Blackboard by Richard Wright. Mm -hmm. And I rebelled. I said, well, why do I need to go to a white library <laughs> and check out a book with Black in the title, authored by a Black writer who was supposed to be critical of white America? I mean, I hated mm -hmm. myself. I really hated myself. Mm -hmm. And But I said, OK. I mean, she, she said, you're going to get the book. So I didn't want to go to, 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 to this white library and just talk to a white librarian. So I went to the library and went into the shelves and found a book. That's all. It was two copies. And I took Black Boy. In fact, I got the first editions here. I got two first editions here. Wow. Black Boy. So I, I went back and sat down in unpeople section of the library and sat down and began to read. And for the first time in my young life, this is the first time I was reading literature that was not an insult to my own personhood. Mm -hmm. uh, the paragraphs and sentences and, you know, and, and, and chapters about us. Mm -hmm. But in many ways about the same struggle, even though he's talking about the South, coming from the South, and, well, certainly Memphis, Tennessee, and et cetera, et cetera. And I finished the book in less than 24 hours, okay? Gave it to my mother the next day and went back to the library and checked out everything Richard Wright had published at that time. And one of the books he published was a book titled what very few people know anything about. It's called, titled uh, White Man Listen. Okay. And White Man Listen is a, is, a, is a collection of essays. And that was his first collection of essays. He would write essays as he moved on into his career because he eventually ended up leaving the country, moving to France. Mm -hmm. But what happened in that book, what uh, affected me so much Basically, was a, it was a very strong essay on the new science of psychology, okay? But also, there was a very long essay on Negro literature, and that was what I needed. Because now I understood that Black writing, or writers by Black people, or at that time, Negroes, was not an anomaly, that there were other writers. And that's when I began to see Margaret Walker. That's when I began to see Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, Robert Hayden. That's when we called McCain. That's when we begin to see these major writers. Mm -hmm. And so after I finished the Richard Wright's book, I had a whole list of writers I needed to read. And systematically, I began to read them. Okay. Mm -hmm. As my mother was, was, was drowning, she was, we, we were drowning in debt. We were drowning in her uh, alcoholism and drugs. Uh, we were drowning in her inability to take care of my sister and I, and it was becoming very important that essentially she just gave up. And she, I, I, I will always remember her, because she, she would sell herself. She worked in the sex, uh, sex trade. And on the weekends, I write about this a little bit in Yellow Black, I would have to go out and look for her. And I, that was not very difficult because at that time, there were only certain homes that had been turned into hotels that mm -hmm. were let to, uh, to, to black, black people. And I would find her. And I would carry a lead belt, lead lead bar, uh, bar around in my belt, pipe, lead pipe, to protect myself and my mother, which clearly was not enough. But anyway, the last time she went out, uh, I found her. And it's you know, one of the most terrible days of my life because she had been beaten to death. Hmm. And I didn't write about that in the book because it's just, it was just too tragic and too uh, uh, negative. Hmm. But the point is that uh, she was a reader she turned me on to reading and that um, 
So this is one of the reasons that I never drank, mm -hmm. never smoked, I never really partied that much and re never really got involved with crowds that I knew that would, were not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. But what prepared me more than anything else was reading. I had started reading at 13, 14 years old and I never stopped. And that is what essentially, so art in the form of literature, in the form of music, black music, I used to play trumpet, in the form of uh, visual art, in the form of dance and drama, basically um, saved my life. Hmm. And it, so with that, I, what I've always found interesting about your career is uh, naturally I've read a lot of your books and the, the books that, that always jumped out to me, Black Men, uh, Yellow Black, uh, I've always loved Tough Notes, uh, mm -hmm. all, all of these books, which again, I want to show them because for, the, for, for people who are viewing, who may want to see what the books look like, uh, you know, these in, in particular, Black Men, which I always felt was my, my all-time favorite book um, mm -hmm. in my life. And this is the book that always been promoted and sold over 1 million copies um, mm -hmm. as one of them. From Planet to Planet was a book that I actually, um, I had, I, I, when I first found out about you writing this book, it was around 2006, okay. but I couldn't, I couldn't find it anywhere but in the library. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I found it in the library, and once I read it, I fell in love with it. So I made sure that I find somewhere to purchase it. Uh, and Tough Notes, which I think really is one of your more underrated books. Uh, the subtitle is "A Healing Call for Creating Exceptional Black Men." Mm -hmm. uh, it, that I mean, I absolutely love it. So I've, you know, I've always uh, celebrated you as a writer and a scholar, but I've also also heard you before say that you're first a poet. Right, that's correct. None of what we have created in Chicago or that I helped create at Chicago State University or anywhere where I've taught, it came about primarily as a poet. You must understand that I did not go to regular academic room, okay? Mm -hmm. I became aware, truly aware in a large sense of who we are where we've come from and what we have left in the past and where we need to go in the present and the future through reading, through literature, through the acquisition of knowledge via books and music and visual art, et cetera. And so I realized early that I could not become a major musician. You know, after you listen to now playing trumpet, I had a scholarship to Wayne State University as, as in music, mm. but I was technical, okay? I could not think music. I could not riff. I could not, uh, you know, any serious, not see the music and play. All mm -hmm. right. But I saw Louis Armstrong do that. You know, I saw Miles Davis do it. I, you know, I saw, I saw all these great trumpet players and I said, okay, I can't do that. Even though I continue to try. But I did find literature more accessible because of the language. You know, you, we grew up signifying. We grew up essentially talking about everybody's mama and all this stuff. So, and as I was reading more and more and more, especially once I got deeply into the poetry, I began to try it. I began, I was writing poetry in high school and the brothers would see me writing and come over and say, hey, hey, my name was Don Lee at that time. 
hey, Don, what you doing? And I said, well, I'm, you know, you couldn't say you're a poet because people would infer incorrect things. I said, I'm, I'm writing lyrics for the miracles, you know, and from the four tops or something like that. That's why I'm writing lyrics for them. And so that's where it pretty, pretty much started. And as I graduated from high school and ended up in the military, I put myself on a schedule of reading close to a book a day. And I would write an essay on each book that I read. And then the poetry books, I would use them and begin to write my poetry even at a more serious level. And the poetry had really influenced me prior to Gwendolyn Brooks was Langston Hughes. Hmm. Langston Hughes was a poet of multiple talents. Not only was he first class poet, but his autobiographies were cru crucial in terms of my own development. Uh, his, uh, uh, his writing for the, for the, for the stage uh, was so important. And, but, but his, he, he, he was one of the few black writers that lived, was able to live and make a living as a writer, mm -hmm. as a poet, as a writer. And so he influenced me a great deal. And so that's how it all started. And as a poet, I came out of the military, continued to publish, volunteer and so forth. Poems began to publish. And the major vehicle that my poems were ended up in began to be published in was uh, Negro Digest, a Black mm -hmm. World magazine, which was edited by one of my mentors, a man by the name of Hort W. Fuller. And Hort Fuller was the second, I guess, really true, third, second or third true intellectual, black intellectual male that I've met. But the difference between Hort Fuller and say Dudley Randall, Dudley Randall, who was a first class poet, had not traveled as much as, as Hort Fuller. Okay. And Hort Fuller edited at that time, Negro Digest Black World Magazine, which was the major intellectual vehicle published by Johnson Publishing Company, uh, John H. Johnson. And so, <clears throat> He began to publish my poems. Uh, he also began to publish my book reviews. And so I was getting a national and international uh, uh, standing there. And what really put me on the map in 1968, Gwendolyn and Brooks had gone down to the Writers' Conference at Fish University, which was uh, uh, initiated and hosted by John Oliver Killens, the mm -hmm. great fiction writer. And she told John Oliver Kills, by that time I had met Gwendolyn Brooks. I met Gwendolyn Brooks at a church on the south side of Chicago teaching the Blackstone Rangers poetry writing. She was working with the great entertainer, activist, writer, composer, Oscar Brown Jr. In mm -hmm. fact, Oscar Brown Jr. is actually one of the, fir the first black rapper. When you're talking about rap, <laughs> you start with Oscar Brown Jr., okay? And so she was working with Oscar Brown Jr. He was pulling together this local uh, uh, stage play called Opportunity Knock for you know the black in the community, black males and female. And so we walked, I was working with Obasi, I and other writers, organization of Black American Culture Work Writers Workshop, which was started by Hort W. Fuller along as myself and some others of the workshop. So we went to this church one Saturday, about four of us, to meet Gwendolyn Brooks while she was working. And at the end of the workshop, she came over and introduced herself to us. And by that time, I was published my first book, Think Black. And Think Black is a white cover and has Africa, the, the continent of Africa in the middle of the cover. Then, you know, I named Don L. Lee. And so 
after meeting Miss Brooks, I gave her a copy of the book. She looked at it for about 15 seconds. And then she took the book and put it to her heart and said, thank you, young man, I'm gonna read this, okay? And that's where this long relationship started. Right, it froze up a little bit. But I guess where I was leaving off was that Hort Fuller as one of my mentors, as well as in terms of the men, Hort Fuller. And the first one actually, El Hodge Malik Al Shabazz, Malcolm X, mm -hmm. and then uh, Dudley Randall, uh, and of course, Hort W. Fuller, uh, and, and Charlie Burroughs. But Hort Fuller was a special, special, special man, just as all of them. I mean, most certainly Dudley Randall founding uh, Broadside Press, which was the first black publishing of books and broadsides in the nation and the world. Um, and he published my, uh, my second book, uh, Black Pride, and about 10 of my books after that. And so the key point here, uh, DeWitt, is um, that we only do what we've been taught to do, mm -hmm. okay? So it's interesting that we can jump on these young gangbangers and, and brothers who are committing crimes and sisters who are having children out of wedlock. In fact, my, my, my sister had her first child at 14 years old. Hmm. Second child at 16, third child at 18. By the time she was 27, she had six children by five different fathers. Ooh. And so we came from the, the worst of the worst, okay? And uh, my mother only saw the first child when she was dead. Hmm. So my sisters had a tremendous difficulty because soon after uh, I graduated from uh, high school, I graduated from Dunbar High School here in Chicago, uh, ended up in the military. And I write about that a little bit in Yellow Black. So the point of all of this is that if you don't know who you are, anybody can name you. Mm. Okay. So it's important that we have a sense of not only self, but a sense of where we're going, what we're doing. And one of the reasons that we build these institutional structures, and Third World Press is over 50 years old, our schools, our Institute of Public Education is over 50 years old, our schools are, are up in age. The reason we built these independent black institutions is to, to basically say to ourselves that we're worth something. Mm -hmm. One, and two, we can build something other than churches, all right? <laughs> and, um, and I don't want to diminish churches because they're critical in terms of our our development and our struggle. But as I talk to you and, and, and listen to you this afternoon, there were 95,000 churches, black, Negro, African-American churches in the nation, mm. 95,000. And what people do not realize is that the major business and the major, the major, the major institution is black church, but also the major business in the black community is a black church. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so well, that's fine. But when we begin to look at other cultures, you know, other ethnic groups, other people who are whole people like we are, you find all kind of institutions. You mm -hmm. see, and this is one of the reasons that spurred us on and, and fueled our drive to make sure that these institutions last beyond me, my, beyond my wife, into the next uh, generation. And just just to briefly just give you bring you an update, Third World Press now has this new leadership in place. Hmm. The, uh, the the new publisher is a Dr. Michael Samunga, mm -hmm. out of um, Atlanta. He's on the faculty at Morehouse. 
the new executive director of uh, Third, World, uh, Third World Press Foundation is a Dr. Lasana Kazembe. He's at uh, IUPUI in um, uh, Indiana, mm-hmm. Indianapolis. And then, of course, the new president of uh, Third World Press Foundation is uh, Dr. Romy Crawford. And she's in Chicago. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so these three people, along with longtime uh, uh, workers and, and strugglers, uh, Rose Perkins, okay, mm-hmm. who's uh, still with us after 20 some odd years, and of course, uh, Antoine, okay, and who's been with us, you know, uh, about 15, 16 years, if not longer, himself. So we are now, and I, I have reverted to the founder and chairman of the board. Okay. And I'll stay around maybe for another year or so. I'll be 79 on the 23rd of uh, February. And I only mention that because it's the same day that W.B. Du Bois was born on. Okay. We were born on the same day. And I've always used his life as a, as a piece of inspiration. He being the major scholar mm-hmm. to come out of our community. Uh, and, and not only major scholar, but also major institution builder, one of the founders of NAACP. Mm-hmm the uh, first editor of the major magazine, the Crisis Magazine, okay? And a, a, a former professor at Fisk University and you can go on and on and, and did graduate work in Germany, at yeah. University of Berlin, you know, I just said, so I've always at, at one small level tried to pattern my life after this great man and um, understood what he had to go through at the time in which he was very active and what I had to go through 50 years ago, 25, you know, so forth. And, and just finally, that's why I'm a vegan. That's why I'm into health. That's why at 78, I still exercise vigorously, eight, five day, minimum five days a week. Mm. And that's why, you know, I'm in yoga and my sleep is important and what I eat and put into my body is critical because I'm trying to stay well, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so let me get back to your question because I'll just go on and on. <laughs> well, so, it, I mean, and you touched on, the, on a lot uh, of what I wanted to get into anyway. So that actually was very good. Uh, but so talk, and talk about women, something that I, I found really compelling nowadays. You saw that you, dress, you, you did a lot to address um, the pain that many women mm. endure. Right, you touched on it uh, with your mom, and you, throughout the book, you talk about just a lot of different aspects of pain that that a lot of women have encountered. And I, I wanted to ask, what do you see um, nowadays when it comes to m- black male female relationships, and how this pain sort of manifests itself in the way young black and men, uh, men and women interact with each other not just sexually you know but but you know friendships work relationships as well as romantic relationships i think the major problem in our community and this is across the board is really um ignorance of self that one of the problems that we could basically cut off at the knees if we actually knew our history Mm. and and therefore in terms of i mean what did harriet tubman actually do Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, as, as, as a warrior, as a soldier, okay, as a as a as a person who essentially saved black lives, men and women. All right, but not only 
Harriet Tubman, what about Rosa Parks? And I mean, I mean, you can go all the way up through our history. You can see that the women in many cases have been despised, but at the same time, I would not be this color. My mother would not be the color that she was if white men had not taken horrible liberties mm-hmm. with black women, okay? Mm-hmm. So we have to understand this, that, that what black women have gone through to maintain the family, to maintain our lives, to make sure that their, their sons and daughters got through high school and the first to go to historically black colleges and universities and first to go to ma- uh, uh, graduate school at major universities and so forth. So this is why it's so, it's so critical that we cannot forget but the problem is we're not forgetting, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, you know, I, can t- I can tell any of your students or the, or the students at Marine Valley, I can walk into your home and tell you exactly where you are culturally. Mm-hmm. And that's how we measure people, by the, by the culture, the development of their culture at one level. But when I walk into your home, firstly, what I wanna see is a clean. Is a clean, that's, that's simple, all right? Then I'm looking on the walls and see what kind of images you have on the walls. Are the images of your family, your mothers and fathers, grandparents, are the images of great black visual art, okay? Then I'm going to your bookcase if you got a damn bookcase, all right? <laughs> because I want to see what you're reading. That defines you. What are you reading? That defines you. And then I'm going to go to your music, you know, whether it's streaming or whether it's albums, whether it's CDs or whatever the case is, and see what you're listening to. Are you listening to great black music? Or are you listening to just the booty call music? What are you, mm-hmm. li- you listening to? Then I'm going to your your movie collection. You know what your DVDs or whatever the case is. You're streaming and you you know what what are you looking at at night? Especially if your DVDs are the, the the movies that are wrapped up in a brown paper bag. What are you looking at? <laughs> but to really tell what that family is, you go to the children's room. Mm-hmm. What's on their walls? Doc Vader, Mickey Mouse, and Donald Duck. And we wonder why we're confused. We're confused because we do not know who we are. If you don't, like I said earlier, if you don't know who you are, anybody can name you. And guess what? They will. Mm-hmm. They will. That's how I became Don L. Lee. I don't know if Lee is European or Asian. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what Don means. <laughs> okay. And so when I asked for a new name, I was given, you know, Haki or Madabuti. But Haki is, if, and Madabuti is from the Kiswahili language spoken in Tanzania, in Kenya. And Haki means just to justice, and Marabuti means precise, accurate, and dependable. I'm not a great king, or you know, I'm just saying mm-hmm. justice, precise, you know, accurate, dependable. Okay. So that that that's what I'm talking about. So so this whole question of culture, the whole question of what are you going to teach your children mm-hmm. is fundamental to men and women coming together to form families. All right. Now, the other part of that, the one reason I wrote this book, Talk About Women, we cannot diminish the intellectual development of Black women. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that they have been pushed back further than Black men in many cases. But what we have to understand is that white men who stole the country from indigenous people mm-hmm. okay, and brought their people over here snatched and stole human beings who were Africans from Africa and sprinkled us around the Western world to build the Western world for them. Mm-hmm. You know, people of African ancestry actually built the capital. 
mm -hmm. and, and built DC, okay? But you wouldn't know that because it is not taught in our schools, number one. Number two, it becomes very critical and crucial that one's respect, you know, you begin to respect, if you, if you respect the knowledge, knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge, more and more you would respect women to read and to study and to go to school and you know to get to the, 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 the necessary uh, credentials to teach or to litigate or to give medicine. Mm -hmm. you, you would want that, okay? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we want that for men too. But the problem is this, white, and I write about this extensively in uh, Black Men, Obviously Single Dangerous. It took me 12 years to write that book. But the problem is white men see black men as the major enemy, mm. okay? And so therefore all this white supremacist institutions and white supremacist notions and white supremacist cultural attitudes are geared first and foremost to the destruction of black men. That mm. is why you have over 2 million black and brown men locked down in the prisons in this country. Mm -hmm. And that for me has been one of the key failures of the black church. Mm. If the black church was functioning at the same level, say for instance, as Jewish synagogues, Okay, we will not have over two million, over a million half black, or half a million, maybe more, uh, black and brown men locked down in this prison. And not to say that it's not close to half a million black women locked down in prisons also, but mm -hmm. I'm saying, how do you stop a race of people? How do you stop a group of people, the ethnic group of people from Africa? You stop the men. Because the white men, basically, they don't have no problem with dealing with black women. Mm -hmm. If you tell me, you're talking about battle, okay? Now, legislatively, when these sisters come out of these law schools and they use the same laws, as long as that's happening, these sisters are great. They're doing great. Work. And it's not to say that you don't have women who, who are not capable of warfare. I'm not saying that at any level. I, I was in the army. I mean, I saw sisters do the kind of work they need to do on the, on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. But the key point always is, it's the men. If you wipe the men out, you're destroying the culture, too. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, if you wipe the women out, you're destroying the culture, too, also. So, but the point is, we're not trying to value or devalue either one. They're both valuable and needed if you're going to have family. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying at one point, we're dealing with white men from the beginning up through the Civil War, post-Civil War, look at reading W.B. Boer's work, most certainly Black Reconstruction, into the so-called Jim Crow era, okay, after the 1900s, into the 20th century, the Jim Crow era. But see, what people do not realize Jim Crow would not exist without Jane Crow. <laughs> no, no, it's very serious about this. You got the men and the women. And so when black men primarily were being lynched, you see it's a holiday. You mm. see the women bringing their children to the lynching mm -hmm. of black men, to the, you know, the, to, to, to total destruction of black men. And so again, we have to realize that we are at war. And, that, and of course, now we bring it all the way up to the present, to uh, January the 6th. Now you see what happened in D.C. Mm -hmm. So there was Jim Crow and Jane Crow men and women. And of course, you, you, we're looking at the uh, uh, impeachment uh, uh, going on now. And, uh, and, and what was very clear to me was that the, the black policeman finally got to the point where he could just sit down and think about what happened during that date. Mm -hmm. And he's just burst into tears because mm -hmm. he felt comfortable around other officers. But he said, never in my life had I been in such a fight and called the N-word over 15 times. Mm. Okay. 
So this is where we are. But this is key. There were 50 million black people in this country, over 60 million Latinas, Latinx people in the country, and about 20, close to about 20 million Asians in the country. Mm -hmm. And of course, indigenous people are less than 1% of 1%. Okay. But the point is that we are not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 million black people and 60 million Latinos, we're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So what's the answer? The answer is communication. The answer is working and talking and sharing and recognizing that the, 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 the groups of people are black and, and brown have been disenfranchised for over half the, the existence of the country. Mm-hmm. And so we are playing catch up, catch up. And so therefore, when, when, when we, we call on the federal government, we call on the state government, call on the local government to go a little bit further to help the disenfranchise. And today, the Republican Party is still trying to disenfranchise us economically, mm-hmm. legally, in terms of the vote, education, all the way. So it's, it continues to be a daily, a daily ba- ba- battle. And I see black women in the leadership of that battle. And most certainly, I think I said earlier that we would not have Georgia without Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. without the sisters in black vote down there in uh, in uh, Georgia, okay, and without the hashtag Me Too, you know, Toronto Burke. So this is who we are, and most certainly now this is what I, my criticism often in terms of Black Lives Matter uh, movements is that these young people have got to study together. See, when we mm-hmm. were coming up at the Institute of Public Education and in Congress of African People. And in these movements, we would have at least one or two days where we would have a book a week that we're reading. Mm. And they would come together and study. Okay. And just like I said earlier, your home at one level today has got to be a mini learning institution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you're not going to get everything from the college or university or high school, the case may be. So your home has got to be a mini learning institution. And so reading for me, has been the answer. Reading for my wife and our children has been basically been part of the answer. So it's just like if, uh, if, if you want to defeat ignorance, say if you want to defeat ignorance, say this is mm-hmm. ignorance, you want to defeat ignorance, then you put a line under that and put under that, read books. <laughs> That's it. Defeat, yeah. igno- defeat ignorance, read books. We're having some t-shirts and some thing, uh, caps made up that says that. But the point is, we have part of the answer in us. Mm-hmm. But part of the acquisition of knowledge requires discipline mm-hmm. and being able to read and love reading. Mm-hmm. One of the real problems is that many of our children come out of the grade school and high school, cannot read, do not enjoy reading. And you go to our prisons where I used to go to, you know, at least uh, once or twice a month until I was shut out. Half the brothers can't read, mm-hmm. can't write, you know. Can't read or write at a third or fourth grade level. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't have a future other than the underground economy. Mm-hmm. Simply you're forced into the underground economy because you can't work in the overground economy. Right. And the overground economy is controlled by essentially white people. Okay. Mm-hmm. And each culture, whether you're Irish, whether you're Italians, whether you're uh, Anglo-Saxons, or, or, or whether you're Jewish, or whether you're Polish, control certain segments of the economy. Mm-hmm. But what we control at one level and really don't control it is basically consumerism. Yeah. We buy from everybody else. Yeah. Rather than creating ourselves because we've been shut out of 
that type of uh, activity because of ignorance more than anything else, you know, and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. White supremacy is no joke. It's not new. The country was founded on white supremacy, but the mere fact it's, it, it systematically wiped out indigenous people that were here. Columbus didn't discover nothing. You don't discover something where people already exist. Right. Okay. You may have found it for uh, Rome or found it for, you know, one of your European nations, but, you know, you didn't discover nothing. It's like saying uh, uh, the British discovered Africa. No, well, of course not. You know? <laughs> so, so that's it. <laughs> well, I, very, very important points. Um, and I kind of want to tie what you're saying into some of the conversations I have, you know, I'm in my 30s now. Uh, and conversations I have with other friends and colleagues who we're in our 30s. It, it, obviously, you're familiar with the statement, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. So it's not true. It's not true. But okay. anyway, uh, so so we we often had these debates about these issues. And, you know, and I'm always thinking there was somebody before us that had these same debates. And so, found, yeah, the debates, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and they found um, answers that we can look to. Sure. So, you know, 21st century, like I say, I'm in my 30s, you know, I'm married, I have a family, me and my friends, they're married, they have families. So we always have this conversation about money. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we always have debates about the role of black people in relation to capitalism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And we have, our, we have our factions in our groups that are uh, very pro-militant, anti-capitalism, uh, because we, we know of the exploitation of the person at the bottom, typically, uh, black or people that are furthest from white. But then we also have the very intelligent conscious side of the group that says, yes, but we need money in order to survive. We need money in order to make changes. We need money for power. So what I want to ask you is, again, probably an old debate. What is it, where do we stand in terms of balancing exploitive capitalism and the need for money and the things that comes with it? Well, what is needed more within the context of our community are basically uh, cooperatives. When you have cooperatives, basically you have people coming together, pooling their resources and building businesses, mm-hmm. or building credit unions. And so all of our lives, we try to do that. So what we've done at, at Third World Press and at the Institute of Biological Education, that people put their money in and to the degree that they contribute to the degree that they receive the rewards also. Okay, mm-hmm. so we call cooperative cooperative economics. That's you know Ujima, all right. And I saw Ujima working uh, from really from the founder of it in Tanzania, mm-hmm. right? And, and and the nation of Tanzania, where Ujima was basically the economic uh, uh, road that they were trying to move toward, and had a chance to meet with the president of uh, Tanzania, the Honorable Julius Nyerere, and sit down and talk with him. So. You cannot see what we're dealing with is not only national but international capitalism. Hmm. And so, at one point, you want to look at uh, the, uh, China and say it's communist, but China functioned primarily as a capitalist nation mm-hmm. under some kind of uh, 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 communist party principles. Mm-hmm. All right, it's not going to allow any company in China get more powerful than the communist party. Exactly, they will shut you down and put you in jail. They've already mm-hmm. done that. Okay, whereas in Russia it works differently. It's much more corrupt, and even in China it's corrupt too. And basically, it's definitely corrupt here. Mm-hmm. Is that 
essentially, if you don't have your foot in the door, if you're not the right color, you don't get in. It's just like, how can you become a partner in a major law firm? Unless you're white, unless you're part of the culture that started the law firm, it is not going to happen, mm-hmm. you see, unless you basically give up on who you are, all right? Um, so economics, and this is why they have departments of economics at major universities, University of Chicago, Harvard, Yale, Northwestern, and so forth. I mean, get whole departments and whole, actually whole schools, mm-hmm. especially take Chicago, whole schools. Multiple buildings. So, that's right. It's, it's, not a, it's not an easy subject, but it's ongoing the development. Okay. How can you make capitalism more human? That's the question. Okay. Uh, is communism actually an economic system that works? But you cannot point to any communist nation for the most part in the world that's working. Mm-hmm. Okay. All have applicants of applications of capitalism. All right. So yes, we can get into the discussion. But I think at one point, we have to understand that, they, that, that there are answers to how communities, how villages, and even how cities can flow. See, what we don't realize, the police department is a socialist venture, mm. okay? Teaching or the educational system, most certainly K through 12, that's socialism, mm-hmm. all right? Fire departments, that's socialism. That works, why? Because it's funded from our tax money funded from the cities that one may live in. Mm-hmm. And so you have got to begin to look at everything at a different level other than just I, okay? Mm-hmm. The question becomes we, what can we do, okay? How, how, and, and, and one of the real problems in capitalism as well as in socialism or communism has basically been corruption. Yeah. It's the corruption of the idea. It's the corruption of the original idea, you see. But we need an economic system that works the best for the majority, mm-hmm. not just for the acute few. And that's how capitalism works. And most certainly in this country, which is basically the embodiment of corrupt capitalism, or for the most part, it's, it's, it's almost like a banana republic, because mm-hmm. it basically it functions for the top 1%. Mm-hmm. Okay? And this started with Reagan. You see, the, 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 before Reagan, the tax, the highest tax for, for the very rich was around 60 or 70%. That's how you built the middle class. Mm-hmm. Where, where men and women who built, whether white or whatever, whatever country, built businesses since the tax rate was at 60 or 70%, 75, 80%, and most certainly during Eisenhower was about 90% after uh, the World War II, the, 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 the capitalists, rather than try to take the money out themselves and keep it themselves, which he could not do, they put the money back into the businesses and the businesses expanded and you built one of the largest you know, factories and, and during Eisenhower period, you, you built in fact, the entire transatlantic uh, 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 highway system across the nation, okay? What we need now is fast rail. Hmm. So if, that, if Biden really wanted to do something to put everybody back to work, look at building fast rail across the nation. So all I'm saying to it is that it, 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 it's not a simple answer to capitalism or communism, capitalism or socialism. It's not. And so you have to read and study and begin to take and choose from the different systems and what's best for our community. Hmm. Okay. What's best for our community? And I would say, first and foremost, if you come from a large family and you have, you know, say, say six or seven brothers and sisters, you have a corporation. Hmm. Okay. If you, if you really chose to trust each other. 
when in the eighties, I was working with some brothers called, and we called ourselves the National Black Holistic Society, mm-hmm. and we built uh, basically what we call these holistic retreats around the country, and it was ten of us, and and the pictures in the book, and and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the book, you do, and I, so I like, you got a picture right, in the book, right? So what we did, we taxed ourselves. We tax ourselves, say ten of us, at, at a minimum of a hundred dollars a month, and then it went up. Yeah, it went up more than that. Mm-hmm. And every year, maybe twice a year, we would put on these national black holistic retreats in upstate New York, and sometimes mm-hmm. in Georgia, and we bring three or four hundred people there. Okay, and then we bring major speakers, black speakers, in from around the country to interact with these brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. and that worked for us for about ten years. And so the key point is that we can do, and, and we weren't, we were brothers, but we were not blood brothers in the sense that we didn't have the same mothers and fathers, but we functioned as brothers, okay? We didn't, none of us got paid. We didn't take any money. We put money in rather than taking it out. Mm-hmm. And that's how we built Third World Press and our schools for the most part. I've never taken a salary from our schools or from Third World Press, nor have my wife. Mm-hmm. We've always worked other jobs, I worked in the academy since you know, over 42 years and was taking most of my money, putting it into building the press, building the press. And I'm from everything from buying our first property. We used to own a farm. We bought a farm in upstate Michigan. Then we bought the property where we are now. But that came about as a result of not sacrifice, commitment. Mm. Profound difference between sacrifice and commitment. When one makes an economic commitment, when one makes a spiritual commitment, when one makes a, an educated commitment to something, that means that you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You see, it's not like I'm, I'm gonna give up this so I'm sacrificing this. No, 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 no. I understand the struggle. I understand where my people have been, where they are today, where we're going tomorrow. And I know that we cannot do this without publishing houses, without schools, pre- preschool through K-12, uh, all mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's how you do it. So I'm not expecting anything out of this. If we ever begin to make any serious money, and we may do that with uh, this new leadership, I would like to have something back to, you know, basically give to my children and so forth like that. And I'm yeah. sure that may, ha- that may happen. But it's not dependent upon that. Mm-hmm. It really isn't. Okay. Uh, my wife and I worked all, I mean, I, you know, I, I retired from Chicago State and I went to DePaul and, and, and basically departed to retire from DePaul. And my wife did retire from Northwestern. And so we have pensions and that's what we live off of. But the key, key, and then of course, I made money off speaking, not only around the country, but around the world. I mean, I have spoken, I've given workshops and poetry readings in every state in the nation, except North Dakota, South Dakota, Hawaii, and Alaska. Okay. I've been to four continents. Okay. I've given poetry readings in India, given poetry readings in Amsterdam, giving poetry reading in 14 nations in, in, in Africa, giving mm-hmm. poetry readings in South America and the Caribbean. Okay? So, and that is another secret of development is travel. Mm-hmm. Now, to put yourself in uncommon communities mm-hmm. okay, where you are forced to listen, then talk, okay? which is an art. There's an art to listening. Okay? And that's why for me, music has always been very important. But that 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 that's it. So so this communism or capitalism, uh, we live in a capitalist nation. Mm-hmm. We're not going to change it. Mm-hmm. We can put pressure on it, 
Okay. But um, I would say look at credit unions, mm-hmm. which are basically the most uh, democratic in terms of money uh, in our communities. And we had a credit union at one point at Institute of Public Education. But you know, we grew out of it. And, I mean, we didn't grow out of it. We, when we moved, we just did not, because it requires an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're too busy trying to learn how to educate these babies, you know. So, right. And publish these books. It was just a, it was a lot on us, you know. Yeah. It still is. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I do want to have uh, two more questions for you because I don't want to take up your whole day. Uh, but two questions that I, I, I think were very pressing and pertinent. Um, it, it, we t- you talked a lot about building institutions, uh, which is necessary for the community. And we always sort of think about the primary institution as being the family, yeah. being the home. And you, you talked about turning the home into a mini learning center. But I wanted to ask you about a quote that I've heard you say a lot that I've taken and embodied in my life um, when you said that as, as men, we should marry women who are smarter than us. Right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Lord, Lord knows my wife is smarter than me. Uh, <laughs> but I, I want to get your, get, get your elaboration on that point. Well, if, if the Lord knows it, I just hope you know it. <laughs> and this yeah. is the key point that my wife and I, we, 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 we courted for six years mm-hmm. because when we started dating, I was teaching at Howard University and I had a contract at Howard where I could travel between Chicago and DC every week, mm-hmm. which I did for eight years. That's a lot. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot, but that was part, part of this commitment in trying to build these institutional structures. Mm-hmm. But not only was I commuting from DC to Chicago every week, I was also traveling around the country and, and internationally too. And so when I met uh, my wife, Dr. Carol Lee, she was Sophie, uh, Mama Sophia, she had just finished a master's degree at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. She had done undergraduate work at the University of Illinois. And so we dated for over six years and I guess around 74, we decided to, to marry. And shortly after we had our third child, uh, I, her mother was living with us. And we had a kind of a community round table between the children and her mother and I. We pretty much uh, strongly suggested she go back and get a PhD, mm-hmm. okay? And <clears throat> the question was where? And even though she had an undergraduate degree from Illinois, Champaign, she had a master's degree from the University of Chicago, she applied at Illinois, Champaign. She applied at the University of Chicago again and applied at uh, Northwestern because she had to stay in the area. Mm-hmm. And she was accepted by all three. And quiet as a kept, she got a free ride offered from all three institutions. Mm. And in education at that time, the University of Chicago was ranked higher than Northwestern and Illinois. Mm-hmm. So she decided to go back to University of Chicago. And the important thing about her returning to University of Chicago, she had a full ride and she did a PhD in three years, Ooh. dissertation at hand. As soon as she finished up, Northwestern came after her with a passion. Mm. Okay? And she ended up going to Northwestern to teach. And that's where she retired from. But so the, the point always is that I've never questioned the intelligence of my wife, but just the point is, She's a scholar. I'm a poet. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can't do her scholarship and she can't write my poetry. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so we recognize the, 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 the brilliance in each area that we chose to dedicate our lives. 
I've had to play on both sides of the track. I've written serious, I think, prose, and uh, but I, I'm not a scholar, even mm. though in Black Men and Claiming Earth and and talk, you know, and and uh, Tough Notes, and my last book of um, of um, prose is uh, Taking Bullets. Mm-hmm. I use the tools of scholarship in order to document material in each of the books, but I'm not a scholar. And I would never call myself a scholar. I, I may call myself a researcher, mm-hmm. okay, but not a scholar. And as a result of being a researcher and a poet, uh, a poet and a researcher, wherever I've taught, I've been able to be involved in building institutional structures in the institutions that I have taught in. And that's because I am a researcher as well as a poet. And as a result of being a poet and having met most of the black writers around and, and functioning at the level that I was functioning at a high level, I knew all of them. So we had the major writers conference, black writers conference, uh, William Brooks writers conference at the Chicago State for over 20 years, mm-hmm. where every major writer and mid-level black writer came to Chicago State. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then we had the uh, International Literary Hall of Fame for writers of African descent. And so we brought over 200 writers into that Hall of Fame. And then we had basically the annual, you know, writers conference for 20 years. And then we had the first uh, MFA program in creative writing. So that, you know, so the, the, the masters of fine arts in creative writing at a predominantly black university. It was one of the first in the country, if not the first. Mm-hmm. And I had, did, I had done my work uh, in, in, in creative writing at the uh, Iowa Workshop, University of Iowa, which was number one in the country at that time. I don't know what it is now. But my point always is that, see, I don't care how beautiful a woman is. That's 10%. Mm. I mean, so I'm saying even the sexual activity between you and that woman is is no more than 10 or 15%. Mm -hmm. So what happens to the other 80%, 85 percent? So there must be a time when both of you are developing together, that both of you can discuss together, that both of you are taking proper roles and 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 developing and and and, and nurturing the children mm-hmm. okay and so that housework is not woman's work mm-hmm. okay just like uh for instance you know taking the garbage out or doing uh so-called men's work around the house it basically you do you 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 decide what you're going to do but how it comes out equity even though you may go be going out working eight hours a day and nine hours a day, depending upon where you are. It may be 10 hours a day in terms of travel and so forth. But she's dealing, if she's at home dealing with these kids, that's no joke. Yeah. That is no joke. I'm telling you. We have three <laughs> children. I know. And by my wife's mother living with us for over 20 some odd years, I can't begin to tell you how that helped us. Yeah. I can't begin to tell you how it helped us. And so, no, I, I think that brothers are afraid of intelligent, talented, serious women because they're not intelligent and talented and serious mm-hmm. because if they were that's that's where they're going yeah isn't it yeah. that's what rather than booty call you want to say yeah what she got up here man what's what's in that brain up there what's mm-hmm. on our mind okay and that's what we have to uh, always begin to move and that's what sisters be saying she'd be saying about the brothers mm-hmm he got any damn sense. You know, all they want to do is play basketball, look at football. That's all they want to do. Mm-hmm. You can't build a life like that. They got to be much more to it than just playing games. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's it. Okay, well, I, I as I said, I'm, I one last question as we wrap it up. Um, it's it's uh, something recent, but also historic. So tomorrow is the release of a movie plenty of people have anticipated called Judas and the Black Messiah. Right. And is is documenting the life of Fred Hampton, in particular the the interaction between him and William O'Neill, who was revealed to be the informant. He was a traitor. He was a traitor, right? Mm -hmm. He was a traitor. Played a large part in, in bringing about his death. Right. Um, extremely happy because it's it's, an, it's introducing Fred Hampton to a newer generation who may not know all of these details. Right. Um, but as for someone who was a, a adult and conscious at the time that it happened and who now has the benefit of hindsight mm -hmm. uh, since it happened. I want to get your thoughts on Fred Hampton, his impact and how it connects to where we are in 2021. If you go to um, Chicago Magazine, the December issue of 2019, mm -hmm. I have a lead piece in there on Fred Hampton. Mm. If you go to Talk About Women, page 168, mm -hmm. we reprinted the poem, not the other part of it, but you had to go to the magazine to see the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But in the poem, it's titled, He Never Saw the Bullets Coming. Yep. All right. I knew Fred, not well, but I knew him. Okay. And one of the last times we were together, we were speaking at Roosevelt University, he and I, mm -hmm. on the same program, okay? And as I listened to Fred, I heard him before, because he was very popular at the time. Mm -hmm. When he came off the stage, I said, look, let's talk a little bit. And, because Fred wasn't from Chicago, okay? Mm -hmm. He ended up So we, we sit, went over to a table by ourselves and the people with him, I told him to hold back, okay? Because I, what I need to talk to him about, I just need to talk to him about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I told him first and foremost, you have to understand, you got to stop calling these Chicago policemen pigs. Mm -hmm. He said, why? I said, because they are pigs. Mm -hmm. They will kill you. Mm -hmm. I'm looking right in his eye. I said, they are pigs. Because I'm in Chicago, I grew up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I know these guys, okay? And I knew a lot of the brothers who had formed the African-American Patrolman League, okay? Mm -hmm. I grew up with them. I knew these guys, okay? And they would tell me, boom, all right? In fact, in Black Men, I interviewed a Black policeman. It's in Black Men, I'm seeing Tingle Dangerous, okay? Side note, I went to I went to high school with uh, Officer Lemieux's daughter. Okay, right, so okay. Her, so her and our we, friends. That's right, we know that. So the point I'm trying to make is that I'm telling him, you need to come with a different language with these police. Mm -hmm. Just just lose that one. And of course, within the next four or five months, he's dead. Mm -hmm. And because, see, not only had the Black Panthers been infiltrated, the Nation of Islam had been infiltrated, yep. NAACP always infiltrated, okay, or infiltrated, all of them, all of them. Mm -hmm. And so you're right about this, this clown that they, 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 I haven't seen it. I'm going to look at it, I guess, tomorrow. But the point is, that in my own minor way, I knew Fred and respected him and ended up knowing his brother. His brother almost went crazy, okay, mm -hmm. as a result of this. 
because mm-hmm. his brother in many cases was on the streets at family and that, you know anyway so anyway that's another whole story <clears throat> and then of course how it affected his 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 child to be to be uh, the sister had not uh, birthed uh, his son mm-hmm. and so these criminals basically went in there and, and murdered him mm-hmm. okay and um so what we have to understand that nothing has changed okay. to the degree that we can put our faith in a local police department mm-hmm. to protect us, okay? And we thought this, one of the reasons that Daviv um, became a policeman, he came to me. I said, we need black policemen, mm. okay? And at the time, the, poli- the, 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 the African-American police league had formed and say just make sure you work with these brothers here don't get caught there by yourself with these these people okay Mm -hmm. and um so that's what happened Uh, i think before we end up i need to release for you one poem otherwise i'm gonna lose my poet license (laughs) (laughs) you'll be my guest absolutely okay um actually I'm, i'm just gonna read i'm gonna read the um part two since Fred Hampton's coming on. Um, okay, I'll, I'll read part of that. And then I'll, just one other poem I want to read. Okay. And, and so the part one is Born in the Time of War. This is uh, the poem, He Never Saw the Bullets Coming. <clears throat> There's little memory of Denmark Vesey and those who betrayed him. Nat Turner's revolt, centuries before the Turner Diaries. Harriet Tubman and the fear her name evoked. Sojourner Truth and people running from her words. Frederick Douglass refusing to accept whiplash. Marcus Garvey daring to organize millions of black people without the permission of whites. W.B. Du Bois committed to thinking outside the box circle. And lies of white conquerors. Ida B. Wells challenging the real fake news. Elijah Muhammad's confirmation of black as integral to self-definition and giving Malcolm X a voice. Fred Hampton daring to tell the people the truth about their lives decades before black lives mattered in a time as is today where white lives matter more as anti-democracy movements entrench themselves. Two, betrayal of one's own kind. It is the wisdom of children that is missing from the blue notes of black musicians who were always ahead, not knowing it themselves. As we revolutionaries pushed, shoved, made up new languages that closely approximated our over needed call for meaningful resolution, light quests, love, honor, and yeses from our creator, by conditions forced into our singular lives within the watchful eyes of the enemies. The enemies of art, drum, drum making, and almond milk. The night before the hunt and kill, they laughed. The Negro officers renewed their nigger cards. The white officers dipped their bullets in pig oil and tore up the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and proclaim that God is white, white, and we go before the first light. With orders from Washington, Chicago's kill squad, 
and FBI's Corndell probe. Reporters who really wanted to be poets confronted their contradictory truths, which ate their eyes and minds and burned their fingernails off while they choked on their lying tongues. It was murder. And we meet to hear the speeches, the same, the duplicators. They say that which is expected of them. To be instructive or constructive is to be unpopular, like the leaders only sleep when there is a watching eye. But they say the right things at the right time. It's like a stage show. Only the entertainers have changed. We remember Bobby Hutton, the same, the duplicators. The seeing eye should always see. The night doesn't stop the stars and our enemies scope the ways of blackness in three bad ships a day. In the AM, their music becomes deadlier. This is a game of dirt. Only black people play it fair. So you can read the whole piece in the December issue of 2019 of Chicago Magazine. I'll just end with that piece. Okay. All right, son. It's been an absolute pleasure of mine to, you know, have a sit down conversation and, and pick your brain and learn more and more from you. Thank you. You know, you 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 are my my living version of Malcolm X. Oh well, that's a big one there. Thank you very much. <laughs> and you know, I always want to say thank you, and, and I appreciate all that you've done for me. Um, just you know, as someone that I can look to, and um and feel that, you know, when you were the first, you, you were the first person whose books I picked up and I read and made me feel that I was normal. Oh, okay. Thank you. As a lover of books, as someone who, who's never had a sip of alcohol, I've never had a sip of alcohol. I've never been high. I've never smoked a cigarette. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and growing up on the South side of Chicago, you always looked at as weird. Right. <laughs> but it wasn't until I picked up black men in, in, in 2005 when I said that well, there's somebody else out there like me. Mm, right. Um, so it, it, it's a pleasure to sit here with you and, and have this in-depth conversation. Um, no, it's my pleasure. And let's stay in touch and uh, give my best to the wife and children and uh, stay strong. And hopefully when uh, this pandemic uh, ends, I can come out there to the school. Okay. Yeah, we, we would love to have you. All right. Take care, son. Thanks. Bye-bye, Keith. Thank you.